Boy, it's great to be back here in Madawaska. Nice and warm. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. I happen to be a winter guy. I don't know why. My mother said to me, and mother is now with the Lord, but a number of years back, she said to me, she said, where did you come from? I said, well, if you don't know, I don't know. So, you know, not good. All right, in your Bibles this morning, Isaiah chapter 43. We're just going to start there. This is a topical message, and I'm going to uh, share with you some thoughts that uh, I think are important, not only to you, but to me as well. So I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching, I guess you could say, almost with you. And it is good to see Jack and Sandy and all the kids. We had a great time over the weekend so far. I don't know what's going to happen after this message, but we'll find out. <laughs> he may never want me back again. You never know. But, uh, yeah, we go back a long ways. You know, it's a great couple you got here. Hang on to them, folks. Good pastors and wives and families are getting harder and harder to find. Trust me on that one. I've sat on my share of pulpit committees over the years. I can't believe that Joyce and I are now finishing up almost 40 years in missions. I am getting old. A little scary, actually. Some of you have been very gracious in saying, we don't look 70. Really? They looked that way in the mirror this morning. I can tell you that. Somebody one time said, they said that women go to bed at night and somehow during the night they deteriorate to the point where they have to put a second face on. Stay with me, okay? Don't, don't get the steak burning yet, okay? And, you know, the guys go to bed at night and get up looking the same way. Well, that's not my feeling, I can tell you. Something happened last night. I don't know what it was, but boy, after being on that mountain, we took a pretty good beating yesterday in the snowshoes. That was fun. I enjoyed that immensely. Just next year, Jack, if we do this again, find a lower mountain, will you? Yeah. Now, it was, it was pretty, pretty simple. It's just the snow conditions didn't allow the snowshoes to do their job very well at times. But we had a great time, and it is good to be back. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to encourage your hearts as much as mine. I, I recognize how difficult sometimes the gospel is, and I, I'm going to say this, and, and I, want to be, I want to be, like I said, encouraging to you, but I understand your situation up to a point. You minister the gospel in a very dark place. No one will ever deny that. But let's be honest, folks. It's getting to the point in this world, and I've preached the gospel in numerous places, and particularly countries overseas. Where isn't it dark? That's the problem. And I sometimes think the church is literally falling down on the job. And so this morning, I want to give you a few things to think about. And to encourage all of us, myself included, I am no evangelist. I do a lot of evangelism, but I am not an evangelist. I don't have that gift. I'm more of an administrator, teacher type, or so they tell me. Okay, we'll we'll go with that. But what I want to say this morning is this. The, The accomplishment or failure of any difficult endeavor is always about attitude, now, I do teams. That's my specialty. I've, I've been probably involved with at least 30 teams over the years. And, and one of the things that I keep hammering into my teams, and I have this CultureLink seminar that I do where, you know, it's like a day and a half of training, and then we get them going on to the, the issues of raising support and getting the paperwork done and all the things that have to be done. 
And But all through that culture link training for that day and a half, I keep bringing in the idea of attitude. Because that is not just skills that get the job done in ministry. It's your attitude that makes the difference. And great athletes will train. And they will tell you that they not only train the body, but they train the mind as well. And that's vital. And one of the things we talked about yesterday, while we were trying to force our way up over this slope that did not want to be conquered, is it's, you know, it's all about here. You can make the body sometimes do it, but if the brain is saying to you, no, you can't do this, you're in big trouble. And so as we were sliding up and down, I said, I'm going to get this done one way or the other. And I appreciate what I've learned in the outdoors over the years. The mountains have taught me a lot of things. Particularly when you think you're completely out of gas, you have more gas in the tank than you realize. And you just get it done. That's how you do it. So thinking of that, you know, as you reach out to the you know, folks around you and your jobs and your families and the community, just keep at it. Keep working at it. And you'll be surprised what God will do with your witness and testimony. And that's what you're about. You are a witness and testimony about what somebody else did with the gospel in your lives. And I think this attitude thing is so true. And I'm going to be hitting you with a bunch of verses here. And I guess, uh, is Sam running that thing in the back? Okay, yeah. All right, he'll give you some of these verses. You can see them on the screen. But the same thing really, in a sense, is true in obedience to the Lord. It is an issue of mind over matter. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus found his disciples sleeping. And he said to them, he said, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit is what? It's willing, but the body is weak. In God's economy, you know, the mind is supposed to run the show. I love Paul's discourse. And, and actually, I don't think I've ever preached on it, and I've, I've been convicted about that over the last 300 and 400 years. I need to work on this. But I love his, his discourse in Romans 7 where he talks about how he sees this law the law of God, but then he sees this law in his members that's warring against the law of God. And he says, and I'm struggling with this. And when I read those 15 verses or whatever it is, it encouraged my heart. This is the great apostle. And he's struggling. I need others to struggle with me. So do you, for that matter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 16, it says this, For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. I'd like to suggest to you, we don't have the full mind of Christ yet, but it's coming. And that's the thing that I'm looking forward to. And so we're going to talk about evangelism this morning, and we need to find out what Jesus possessed in his heart and mind regarding the reaching of the lost. First of all, this morning, Jesus had a sense of mission. He understood his mission as the Savior. We got Isaiah 43 up there? Okay, good. Isaiah 43 says this, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is what? No Savior. No savior. Very exclusive. What a claim. And by the way, this is echoed in Isaiah 45 and verse 21 and Hosea 13, 4. These verses say the exact same thing. There is only one Savior. You'll notice the word Lord. I have a King James. It's in caps, and that's the reference to the divine name, Jehovah. And it's a reference to the idea that the Savior has to be God. Not man, God. And yes, he came in man's form, but he had to be God in order to accomplish the task. And so this is, uh, Christ is freely acknowledged as the only Savior as well. 
Listen to these verses. Luke 2.11, For unto you is born this day in the, in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Ephesians 5.23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is... Now watch how the Greek structures this. He is the Savior of the world. That's, that's very, very tight company when you think about it. Philippians 3.20 says the exact same thing. For our citizenship is in heaven... From whence we also look for the Savior, that's emphatic in the Greek, the Lord Jesus Christ. In nine other references, the New Testament writers, Paul, Peter, and even Jude, would call him our exclusive Savior. He is the only Savior if anyone's going to be saved. It's that simple. You know this. I'm preaching to the choir. And Jesus was aware of this, that he is the only Savior. There's none before him, there'll be none after him, and that's all there is to it. In that great discourse, and really it's an argument, in John chapter 8, Jesus makes it a pronouncement that a lot of times I think is Gentiles, a lot of us miss. You're familiar with John 8, 12, right? I am the light of the world, right? How does that compute in your thinking? Let me tell you what it meant to the Jews. You probably don't know this. Maybe you do. I don't know. I don't know what you know. You've got to have me back, I think, maybe in 10 years, maybe the next time. Yeah. For the Jews to hear that in John 8, it was a claim to deity. Now, when you read the rest of the text, now you know why there's this big fight. Now you know why there's this problem of them saying, well, we're not born of fornication. Our father's Abraham. And eventually they picked up stones to stone him because they saw him claiming to be God in the flesh. But Jesus says this in verse 24 of that same chapter. He said, I said therefore unto you, you will die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now folks, understand this and begin to apply this to your lives. When you know you're the only hope for someone, now you've got a sense of mission. And God has amply and sovereignly placed each one of you in your own personal mission field, and you may be the only person who ever shares the gospel with people around you. That should give you a sense of mission. In Luke chapter 4, and verses 18 to 19, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath chosen or has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 43, he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore I am sent. Matthew fifteen twenty four. he said, I'm not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In the Gospel of John, Jesus clearly, at least 40 times, said he was perfectly aware that he was sent from the Father. You know what? There was no identity crisis with the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew exactly who he was. He knew. He did not come here to be king. You know that. Not yet. He was already king anyway. But he came the first time because he knew he was the only Savior. May I suggest to you this morning that as Savior, this was more than a title. It was his mission. I get to take teams up to Montreal every year to do street evangelism. You want a challenge, try that one. And a lot of times I'll use this verse, Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save, that is, as a Savior, that which is lost. And so, folks, this morning, understand this and, and apply this to your life as well and to mine, too. 
no matter what we do, and in his case, no matter what he did, whether he was you know, raising the dead or healing the sick or calming seas or casting out demons, everything was subservient to this first and primary mission. His entire purpose for being here was the redemption of souls. Now, let me make something perfectly clear to you this morning. And I've been preaching this now for several years because somewhere along the line, I guess when I was around 65, the light came on. Why am I here? Now, I don't mean here in Madawaska. Why am I on this globe? Now, what we're doing this morning, folks, is this. We're here to worship. We sing. We give. We pray. We we sit under the sound of the word of God. Can I suggest to you, we can do all of this in heaven. What can't we do in heaven? You got it. We're here now. This is our moment in history. We either get it done now, or it doesn't get done at all in our lives, working with other people. This is why the church is here. This is why you're here in Madawaska. This is why I'm down in the Bangor area. Paul understood his own personal mission. The Holy Spirit used Ananias to reveal it to him. After Ananias found out who he was going to go talk to, boy, I'll tell you what, he must have sweat bullets. Scared to death of this apostle Paul. Well, he was an apostle at that point, but close. And the Lord says to Ananias, you go your way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 2, he said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Joyce and I spent eight years doing church planting in New Zealand. Want to go to darkness? Try that place. Spiritual apathy you can cut with a knife. They don't care. I, I've never, I don't think I've ever had really anybody ever say to me in the United States, and particularly in Maine, I don't care if I go to hell. Kiwis will tell you that. We don't care. You'll care someday, but maybe you don't care now. And we went to New Zealand, and we had a sense of mission. We knew why God was sending us there. Now, we knew we'd have a lot of different experiences and adventures and so on, and we got that, and yeah, yeah, you're in the mountains. You know me, you you give me a backpack. You can't keep me off the slopes. But our work there was to reach people with the gospel of Christ, and we knew that. I'll tell you right now, a missionary without that sense of mission ought to stay home. And the Savior, Jesus, never let anything stand in the way of this one goal. The Bible says in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So we have a sense of mission. You come to the idea you've been uniquely placed to reach other people that God has for you. And in a sense, we have a unique mission field that we've been placed in. You have it, I have it, and so on. And so it's vital that each believer look closely at the particular field in which God has set them. You know, the danger is so easy, we can overlook it. We just look right through it, like it doesn't exist at all. You say, how do you know that? Because I've done it myself. You know that waitress yesterday? We should have said something. How is that? How does that work? It's like some days we just don't seem to have it. Maybe I was wore out from the mountain, I don't know. But here's the kicker. This is a proposal to think about. If Jesus had a sense of mission, then we who are connected to him should possess the exact same sense of mission. 
and that is to reach the lost. Number two, Jesus had a sense of urgency. <laughs> One of the things I've learned with teams is this. It's human nature. We, uh, Brother Christie was talking about hypocrisy this morning. I don't know if you know this or not, but you have the same problem, hypocrisy. We all do. We're infected with it. I've got it. I don't know what to do with it some days, you know. One, you talk out of one side of your mouth some days, you know, and other days it's like, ugh. It's terrible. But also as humans, we also have procrastination. And when I run the teams, I set deadlines. We have a schedule. And I warn them. I said, if you don't reach this deadline, you're off the team. I know I'm coming across hard nose, but I've learned the hard way. So they know passports have got to be in on a certain time. Certain level of support's got to be on a certain time. This paperwork's got to be in at a certain time. If it isn't, you're not going on the team. And they take me serious. So I've learned to set deadlines. And it works. And folks, the point of this is this. When you know the time is short, and that certain things are expected of you, it should give you a sense of urgency. You've been watching the news lately? I'm amazed we're still here. Some days I look at the, you know, I look at the ceiling when I'm praying, Lord, what are you waiting for? Get me out of here. Let's get out of here now. This world is just coming uncorked. And they don't even know it. And I'm sick and tired of hearing about how good men are. Oh, man. Give me a break. But we're, you know, sometimes I think as believers, we act like we still have plenty of time to reach the lost. But know what the Bible says about, this, about having a sense of urgency. Ephesians 5 and verses 15 to 16 says this. See then that you walk circumspectly. I don't like these next three words. Not as fools, but as wise. I like those. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Colossians 4 and verses 3 through 6, which won't go up on the screen, screen, say the exact same thing. We are to redeem the time. We are to walk in wisdom toward them that are without. And the word outside is in reference to those who are outside the body of Christ, outside salvation, outside of redemption. We're on the top of the hill yesterday, and Pastor Gary out of Eagle Lake said to me, he says, what's Katahdin like to climb? I've climbed it a few times. Isn't that right, Sandy? She knows how many. I'm not going to tell you. 57? 50, oh, you rat. Yeah, 57 times. I was, at, I was telling him, I said, I was asked to guide a, a group from a department store in Bangor back in the 80s. And the whole idea was we're going to go up the Appalachian Trail, cross Knife Edge, down Helon Taylor. And if you've ever walked down Helon Taylor, it helps to be a masochist. You know what a masochist is? Just love to suffer. We just hit the gateway at the top of the AT, which is where the tableland starts, and I could hear this thunderstorm coming off in the distance. And I said to the guys, I said, okay, I said, here's the deal. We're not crossing Knife Edge. They said, well, we came to do the edge. I said, well, we're not going to cross Knife Edge. I said, do you hear that coming? They said, yeah, we hear it, but it's way off. I said, about the time we get to the summit, it ain't going to be as way off as you think. I said, I'm going down saddle. Well, you want to do the edge? I said, fine, go do the edge, but you're not doing it with me. If you've ever been on Katahdin in a lightning storm, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know what was really funny? I got to the top. I don't even think we took a picture. I walked up, I smacked that sign and kept right on going. I want to get off this thing. You know what was really funny? That thing hit us just about at the head of saddle. I didn't have to push those guys at all. 
I don't recommend running down a mountain, but we ran. It's real impressive being up there in lightning, let me tell you. There was no more arguing about it. They had a real sense of urgency to seek safety. That's one of the problems in evangelism. People don't have a sense of urgency to receive the message of Christ. Let's not make that our mistake in sharing it. All the obvious signs are in place for the soon return of Christ. The world seems not to notice. They're not looking for a risen, returning Savior. They didn't want him. But Jesus in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21 talked about the the parable of the fig tree and things coming nigh and, and even at the door. And when you see these things happening, you know your redemption draws nigh. But here's the kicker. When the church has lost sight, when Harry Straub has lost sight of the obvious signs, then it loses or we lose our sense of mission and our sense of urgency, and it should cause us to reevaluate where we're at in evangelism. Have we looked at the prophetic clock? Go over to Luke 16. I preach on this passage every once in a while. It's been a few years since I've done it. But I'm actually captivated by this guy. Ever get captivated by Bible characters? Yeah. I like Jonah. Got swallowed by a fish. Now, I don't think I want, I'm a fisherman. I don't think I want to be swallowed by any fish. Can't imagine what that would have been like. Jonah and I are old buddies. Sometime maybe I'll tell you about that. I'm not going to read this whole story, but you, verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously. And then you had Lazarus the beggar that laid at his door. Two men. Their history... Their social status, their financial status, complete ends of the spectrum. And the rich man dies, as you know, and he winds up in the fires of hell. And what I find is remarkable. Now watch verse 27. Then he said, this is after trying to get Lazarus, who he never gave a a lick of time to in life, tried to get Lazarus to bring just a drop of water to put on his tongue, Verse 27, he says to Abraham, he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that you would send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they should come to this place of torment. Now, this is what I don't get. This guy, in hell, becomes the Billy Graham of hell. What happened? Well, whatever happened was too late. That's what happened. And what did Father Abraham said? Well, they've got the word of God. They got Moses. They got the prophets. Let them hear that. What is it? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It's amazing. Now, this guy all of a sudden has a sense of urgency. In his own life, he had no desire to help anyone, beggar or brothers. He probably never spoke to his own brothers about it. For him, it was too late, but his five brothers are still around. Here's an unsaved man with a sense of urgency. That ought to really fire us up. For the saved who are still alive, there's time to evangelize. That's us. And so there's a time coming for us when it will be too late that our mission will have run its course. Isaiah 49, 8 says, In an accepted time I have heard thee. In a day of salvation I have helped thee. I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the peoples to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. And that's echoed, actually, in part in 2 Corinthians 6.2. You know, life's filled with risk-takers. I've taken a few. 
So have you. Some of the greatest risk takers of all are, are those who refuse the offer of salvation made for them in this life. They are fully and completely uh, have failed to estimate the huge risk they are taking in this life, and thus they have no sense of urgency. Now watch, folks. While many people may tragically delay their decision regarding Christ, we cannot, as a church, as the body of Christ, delay our deliverance of the message. We must keep this sense of urgency. One of history's most famous gamblers was a man known as Nick the Greek Dandelos. The amount of money he won and lost in the first half of the 20th century absolutely staggers the imagination. Now, the best they can do is estimate. But you've got to remember that this guy died penniless in, on Christmas Day in 1966. And the figures that are estimated is he lost something like $500 million. About $15 billion in today's figures. But his greatest gamble was a bet of six to five odds he would live long enough to finish his memoirs. Did he win? He did. He won the bet. But he lost. You know what he said about eternity? He said it's just a time of peaceful dreams. And he didn't want Christ. He threw it all on the line, and he lost big time. And so it is for people like this that Jesus had a sense of mission and a sense of urgency. Last this morning, Jesus had a sense of what is truly at stake. When you understand what's at stake, it is supposed to compel you to action. Survivors of any disaster will tell you at the moment of the height of the crisis, they became very much aware of the great danger we were in. I could tell you a few stories because I got personal experience with this. Boy, when you wake up, and it's like, whoa, we are in really deep water here. Yeah, that's when you get it. But prior to that, everything seemed perfectly fine with no action required. And I think this is why Jesus spoke so much more on hell, as you well know, than he did on heaven. He warned repeatedly, and he warned about the sins of men that would put men in the fires of hell, and he warned about the God who would do that if they did not receive Christ. We're all familiar with the story of the Titanic. I use it as illustrations from time to time. By the way, I lost a relative on that ship. My grandmother's second cousin, Perry, she was a missionary coming back from India. Give up her seat in a lifeboat so that, that a woman with a child could, could survive. It's an amazing story. Do you know that people refused to get into lifeboats? They refused. The ship's going down. Oh, but she's unsinkable. Now, wait a minute. Hold it, hold it, hold it. Wait a minute, whoa. The bow's underwater at this point, folks. She's listing to port. It's going down. What was it? The, the, uh, I think it was the builder, Mr. Anderson. He said something about when, when, the, when some of the crew said, well, you can't sink. He said, I assure you, she'll sink. Things made of iron. It's going to the bottom. But they wouldn't get into the lifeboats because the ship was considered unsinkable. They refused to look at the evidence and get into the lifeboats. Worse yet, that ship embarked on its maiden voyage with everything you could ever want except enough lifeboats. Folks, in Christianity, in evangelism, we got enough lifeboat. Singular. Christ. The blood never runs out. Ever. If 
50 billion people want it to be saved, the blood could cover all the sins. Amen? Amen. Amen. I like to hear you say that. We have enough lifeboat. The problem is people don't want to get in it. Such as our rich man here in Luke. You know, the people of Noah's day didn't believe in rain, mainly because they'd never seen it. I used to work in a food program at our church in Hudson. It was my own little mission field when I wasn't doing missionary work. <laughs> you know, I'd be there every Friday when I could, you know, and try to help out. And after a while, I started running the thing for the church. But I, I had opportunity to talk to people almost every week, unsaved people, lots of them. I was talking to this one lady one time, and I'm sharing the gospel with her, and I went over to the track rack there, and I got some tracks, and I said, here, Joanne, I said, take this, take this track home, or tracks, because it was a booklet and a couple other things. I said, and read it, and then come back next week and tell me what you think. She said, okay. She came back the next week, and she said, I got to tell you, she said, I really love the message that you're talking about. And she said, and I love this literature, but she said, I got one problem. I said, what is it? She said, I don't believe in hell. I said, you are aware of the fact that just because you can't see something, that does not necessarily mean it's not real. Do you know, folks, about 200 years ago, and I'm being generous with the time, if I stood up someplace anywhere, it wouldn't have to be a church, and I would say to them, this pulpit is made up of something called an atom. And it's got all these neutrons and electrons and anything else tron that's going around it. And it's got all this, and this is what the entire universe, including your body, is made up of. They would have drummed you out of society. They would have laughed at you. I told her, I said, just because you can't see it doesn't mean that it's not real. I do a lot of apologetics work, and one of my favorite things that I like to hit unsaved people with is about the Hittites. Do you know back in when, when archaeology was an early science back in the, the 18, early 1800s? They were digging in the Middle East, and after about 20 or 30 years, these experts said, you know what? The Bible's an error because... <clears throat> the Hittites never existed in history. We've never found a, a bit of evidence. Yeah, go to Syria now, unless the ISIS has destroyed it, but they've got an entire museum now there dedicated to the Hittites. So when you're out in the woods, look over your shoulder because Sasquatch could just be real. <laughs> now there's a campfire story for you, let me tell you. Have you seen one? I'm not telling you. <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> We've heard it. Yeah, you and I heard it. We heard it. Yep. Just because you don't see it, it doesn't make it any less real. However, there is one thing for the lost to, to not understand what's at stake, but for Bible-believing Christians to not understand, that's completely unacceptable. Now, here's the problem. I want you to go to Romans chapter 8. Watch this. I'm going to drop the bomb. Then we're done. Go to Romans 8. Once again, I'm not preaching at you. I got my fingers pointed at myself as well. Watch this. <clears throat> we confess to know and follow Jesus, yet we so often refuse to warn others about the impending danger. It's almost as though we really don't believe his teaching on this horrible subject. Or in this case, a glorious subject of the gospel. The very fact that Jesus came and gave his life to redeem us reveals to us the seriousness of the situation. Luke 19.10 again. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. But look at Romans 8 and verse 29. 
For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Do you notice that word, conformed to the image of his son? Did you catch that? That, folks, is our goal. This is where we're going. We are going to be conformed to the very image of Christ. I cannot get my mind around that. That is so hard in this body, with this brain, to get my mind around what that's going to be like. But we say we're being conformed to the image of Christ even now in our days of our flesh. But let me ask you this. Once again, I'm asking myself the same thing. Do I have his three qualities? Do I have a sense of mission? Do I have a sense of urgency? And do I have a sense of what's at stake? And this excites us to think that this is where we're going. But are we like his son in our character and in our obedience? Maybe we need a dose of what Jesus said to his own parents in Luke chapter 2 and verse 49. How is it that you sought me? Know you not that I must be about my father's business? The father sent the son to redeem the lost. He is now sending us to continue the work of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Conclusion, if Jesus had a sense of mission, a sense of urgency, and a sense of what's at stake, what about us? What about us? I don't know you folks. I've enjoyed the fellowship with you. You've made me feel as part of the family here. I'm already in love with this place. I think you're great. I think you're a good church. I think you've got a good heart for the lost. I think that's pretty obvious. But maybe this morning here in this very building, there is someone who has never come to Christ. Maybe. Do me a favor, will you? Do yourself a favor. Get that sense of urgency, if nothing else. Don't leave this building without coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. Your sins have separated you from God, but God has sent his son to die on a cross for you. Because he understood the sense of mission, urgency, and what's at stake. You need to do the same thing as well. Talk to somebody. Maybe Pastor Jack will give an invitation. I don't know. But don't get out of here today until you know that you're in right relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, the gospel is no game. You know that. The very fact that sinless blood was shed for sinful men makes it perfectly clear. The price was beyond any human understanding. I'll be honest with you. Lord, you know I've preached this gospel for way over 40 years. And I still don't understand the depths of it. It is beyond comprehension that you would do this for us. But that shows the seriousness of it. And so, Father, this morning I just pray that you'll help us to be like your son. To go out, to share, to, yes, even see fruit as a result of us sharing. What a great joy that is. Lord, you know some of the adventures I've had in life. They were nothing compared to seeing souls come to Christ. Nothing. But I also ask, too, for one that might be here today. If they need Jesus, make this the day that they're redeemed. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.